It's Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. This is the weekly opportunity we have to bring together some of the award-winning journalists all over the East End and uh, do a little bit of a deeper dive into the week's news. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm your co-host. I am executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the website 27East.com. With me is my co-host, Bill Sutton, who's the managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Good to have you as always. And uh, our panelists today, uh, we have J.D. Allen, who's the managing editor of WSHU-FM up in Connecticut, uh, covering the East End as well. Hey, J.D., how you doing? Glad to be back. Always good to see you. And uh, we have a new panelist today. We have Jessica Mackin, who is the editor and co-publisher of the James Lane Post, published here in Southampton Town. Good uh, morning, Jessica. Happy to have you. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Good to have you on. Um, so let's start by talking about what I think was uh, one of the bigger stories this week in Suffolk County, and that was a couple of Black History Month uh, tweets that went out, social media uh, posts that went out by the Suffolk County Historical Society and also uh, the Southampton History Museum uh, that were intended to promote Black History Month, but really did run afoul of the NAACP because of the use of imagery that they had. Um, Bill, can, can, can you sort of describe what happened? Uh, what, was, what, was the, what was at issue here? Sure, well, the, the Suffolk, um, Suffolk County History uh, Historical Society sent out an, an email, um, and, as they do every week, and they, they do like a, a, a photo of the week, um, every week, and it was a photo of a uh, of a KKK march um, back over 100 years ago in in Riverhead. It was a photo that promoted that, and it had a, a short historical explanation of the the KKK's role, um, you know, on 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 the East End. Um, the, the 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 description I think was so so the photo and description were taken from previous posts, and, and I think. You know, previously there had been a, a little more context to it, and, and I think this one email there was uh, very little context. Um, and the Southampton History Museum, um, around the same time, I think it was you know separated by by a week or, or so, um, was was promoting a discussion um, that they were having, and in in promoting that discussion, um, had had a, a picture of a. A person in in the KKK robes with a burning cross behind them, um, you know, as, as a way to to promote this uh, discussion on. And I'm going to blank on the name of the film. What was the name of the film? It was uh, Birth of a Nation and the novel right. The Klansman, which, right. which is what it was based on. Which which is is a historic. You know, it was a historic film. It was one of the earliest films, but uh, obviously it's it's you know derided now as as just. Um, awful racist uh, propaganda basically at the time right. but Jenny, and, and i think the discussion was 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 meant to to highlight uh, highlight yeah. highlight that and and highlight the you know that that black mark in history um you know but but i think you know look both organizations i'm sure were were kind of well intentioned but i think the point was made that their well intention was just short sighted and and when you have you know, uh, you know, it, they, so there was a press conference in in Riverhead following that both both organizations agreed to suspend their executive directors um, 
for for two weeks um, as a means to apologize and a means to go back and look at how they do these things. And, you know, while well-intentioned, I, I think the point was made is, is that so you have these these groups of that that are made up and run primarily by by people, uh, you know, by white people um, that that may not have understood the significance of that imagery, especially during Black History Month. And and I think that um, not for nothing, this was like the perfect storm, too. It was it was it was like if you had one incident, I think it could have been dealt with. But you had both of these incidents occurring at the same time. And it just it just really highlighted, uh, you know, what, what, what was wrong in the thinking there. Yeah, JD, I feel like the 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 point that Bill made was also made at the press conference, and that is that why focus on you know the Ku Klux Klan during Black History Month? And and I think the answer to that is it's something that happens when when you look at something like Black History Month through a prism of of an organization that doesn't have enough people of color at the table having a conversation about what's appropriate and what isn't. And, you know, I think the NAACP folks, uh, the, the point that they made was there's so much more positive things to talk about in Black History Month that this was just an unfortunate way to, to I, I don't think either organization, and I think, I, think I, I have to give credit all the way around here. I think the NAACP folks were very fair uh, in accepting the apologies, and they were very, you know, I think they were sincere apologies for both organizations. And more importantly, both organizations sound like they're going to take some action to try and address this. But it, it was just a, it was a, it was a real kind of an ugly moment, wasn't it? Well, I, I think the point that we're making here is that it's the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Um, mm -hmm. This was an instance of majority white run institutions doing something for black history month that was saturated in whiteness, right? They took um, something that was core to yes, Suffolk County. Um, Suffolk County has a history, a very dark history with groups like the KKK um, and white supremacy. And while those are important discussions to have always, um, but also during Black History Month, there needed to be way more information and there needed to be way more um, perspective to how people of color in our region have been impacted by whiteness and white institutions um, like the KKK, but also in institutions that try to remember events yeah. like those. And it really was a sign that some of our institutions have not caught up with being as um, and having the full spectrum of views that we need to be able to remember our history. Yeah, because I mean, the, the, the conversation that that the Southampton History Museum in particular had 
was a virtual lecture by Joan Baum, who uh, works, uh, Joan Baum, who is from Springs and who also uh, does work with WSHU and has written for us. And I think we, she's, she's a very well-respected literary critic. And I think there was a legitimate conversation to have there. And her point was that maybe using the novel, The Klansman and the film Birth of the Nation could bring the conversation about white supremacy and how it's been part, you know, the whole conversation right now is uh, about critical race theory. That That's that's a, a buzzword nationally. There is a conversation to have about white supremacy and how it's been part of our culture for, for so long. And I think that was yeah, well-intentioned. Joe, it's also, we're talking about white supremacy from a perspective of whiteness. And yeah, that's sure. what I think is a part of the problem. I mean, Suffolk County has a history with white supremacy, but it also has a history of harboring some incredible um, um, Afrocentric, um, indigenous um, perspectives of how those communities dealt with white supremacy and so yes talking about books um like that um are important but i think that moving past just those remarks is is what the NAACP was looking for and that those decisions were also made to talk about those movies and those films um, without um, r really all of uh, w without the table being set with everybody included. Well, just I, 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 I think too, you know, when when you look at at that, I mean, the the, the question was not necessarily the um, you know the the discussion. The question was was the imagery. They they selected this image of uh, you know of a of a Klansman standing in front of a burning cross. Um, you know, and put that out on on Instagram and and in looking at it and, and their explanation, they were they were drawing on on images from the insurrection, um, you know, last year and, and trying to compare the two. But but that image, I, I, again, I, I want to just keep using the word short sighted. And, you know, I, I think one of the people at the press conference had said, you know, we're we're tired of learning moments, <laughs> you know, where, where, you know, OK, so we're going to call it a learning moment and move on. Well, no, I mean, let's 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 learn you know, and, and let's change. And Jessica, it's, it's, it's about context too, right? And, and, you know, there's a bigger question here about how this fits into Black History Month, but those images being put out the way they were without really an appropriate amount of context, I, I think just made it just, just made the whole situation even worse. Absolutely. And I think really explaining it and the reasons behind it were sort of lost on everyone when when that happens. Um, I think the fact, you know, they apologized and um, they clearly know that it was wrong what they did. So I think I would say in general that the cultural institutions on the East End really have, you know, and this is an, another moment of growth, I would say, for these, you know, different cultural institutions to just become more inclusive. And we have seen it with whether it's content or a more diverse board or everything like that. So I think these two historical societies um, can really take that and really make that a part of the programming because I think it is so important, um, especially not just during Black History Month, but 12 months out of the year to really 
make it part of our collective history and teaching each of these moments and mm -hmm. and really celebrating that. Yeah. Bill, as you said in the beginning of the conversation, is that these groups are run by majority volunteers. And it means sure. that these organizations have a great opportunity to now go into communities that are maybe underserved in their um, audiences and be able to find volunteers that better reflect their communities. Right. And I think, you know, one one thing that, that they had talked about, too, is so you have, you, you know, you have maybe maybe one person you know, look, any volunteer organization is is always hard up to to find volunteers. We know we know that. I mean, it, people have have busy lives. Um, but I think you had you know instances where where a single person, and not to single anybody out, but you had one person making a decision on what to send out on these social media posts and, and email. And perhaps if you had a group of people that were reviewing. Um, you know, those those items before they're posted, before they're sent out. And that included people of color, then then maybe, um, you know, these instances could have um, um, maybe, maybe they wouldn't have happened. And, and, I, and I think that not not just for Black History Month and, you know, and, and for people of color, but just to have a wide array of people, you know, looking at the stuff where where possible um, to, to try to make sure that uh, that nothing, you know, is, is sent out is is, is offensive. Part of the shame of it, too, is that it it overshadows some really good things that are happening for Black History Month on the East End. The Southampton African-American Museum has an amazing uh, virtual exhibit uh, that lets figures from, uh, you know, the black community throughout the local region's history tell their own stories through through actors. It's it's really pretty remarkable, pretty remarkable thing. And then, you know, when you talk about the fact that you know, there are dark sides to the conversation about Black history on the East End. East Hampton Library, we had a story this week about an exhibit that they're doing, which, which is about unearthing the fact that there was slavery, there were Black slaves in East Hampton town. And that was really not something that was widely known for a long time. And, and the exhibit, more importantly, really focuses on the men and women who were in slavery, but brings them to life beyond, you know, just being commodities, which is clearly how they were considered at the it, time. And it, it, it's it, it, it names them. It, 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 yes. it, it finds old records of, of their names and highlights their names, which makes them human beings, Joe, like you said, not not a commodity, but but human beings. And, and I think that's really critical. And a lot of that is the effort of the Plain Sight Project that our friend David Rattray is involved with, uh, the editor of the East Hampton Star. And, uh, you know, I think it's it's a demonstration that the, there are there are slight differences in focus that make a, make all the difference in the world with these kinds of conversations, no question. So this is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. Uh, thanks for joining us. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm your co-host along with Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. With us today are J.D. Allen from WSHU and Jessica Mackin of the James Lane Post. And uh, Jessica, I want to talk. Uh, OK, so here's where we dive into the really difficult topic, because you've written uh, just recently about NFTs and how NFTs have become a big part of the local art community. Uh, they're a big part of uh, the community in, in general out there. So you have 30 seconds, explain NFTs to us. I, well, I, I challenge you to, to, to sum this up so that I, cause I have to be 
perfectly blunt with you. I have read articles. We have written articles. We have published articles. I still really don't understand this, what NFTs are. Can you try and let's all, let's all spend a minute or two just trying to make clear what they are. Dumb dumb it down for Joe a little bit. Dumb it down. Yeah, please. Well, in uh, NFT is a non-fungible token, which is stored on the blockchain. Um, basically, I, I really, what I understand it is in terms of art and music and things like that, where it's like we're selling a digital version of something. So just to really simplify it, like a digital piece of art is being sold. But because of the way it's sold, um, the artist themselves is able to really collect royalties, I guess, um, or, you know, become paid while they're living artists, which is really important, but also as it continues to sell and trade and become uh, valuable. Um, I know that there's talk of NFTs with literally everything from brands and, and you know, ticketing and things like that, which I can't fully wrap my head around, <laughs> but I'm trying. Um, but we had two stories uh, recently about, there's an NFT weekend coming up in, on the North Fork. I think it's March 25th. Um, the weekend of March 25th, and we interviewed Brendan Fernandez, who's um, a an artist who has been working in the NFT world, who will be hosting the event. Um, and then we also interviewed um, artist Chelsea Brown, who is working with CME um, and plans to raise, I think it's around $5,000 for an NFT she's working on that will be auctioned off for the... So just in general, I think that this, we're going to see a lot more of this. Um, the NFT weekend seems to be more of an educational tool for people in the community to sort of come and learn about it because I know I myself, I, I need to learn more <laughs> and I know it's going to be something yeah, that we need. Like, for, for purposes of our conversation, it's, it's really just another medium for artists <laughs> to work in, right? I mean, for, for creating a work, an original work that can be yeah. sold then. And especially Brendan Fernandez was explaining as like a, dancer um, and he works with dancers as well as visual art um, you know it's a way to have the people who are part of it paid throughout you know it continually so it's really interesting as opposed to a performance which is a one-time or for an extended run or however it's uh, structured but um, with this it sort of lives on forever so it's really interesting and instead of it just being in the digital space for free um, the value is basically what society puts on it. So you're going to see, you know, certain artists being sold for, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars while some, you know, could trade for smaller amounts. And I know it's really locked in with uh, cryptocurrency and whatnot. So I'm, I'm excited to learn more about that. And I, you know, I think the uh, JD, I want you in on this too. You're not, you're not, don't, don't think you're hiding over there. You're going to talk about NFTs, whether you like it or not. Um, I think the newness of it certainly um, spurred the the values of some of the early works. I, the best example, I think, is the when the New York Times wrote about this the first time. They actually created an NFT. I believe it was of the article itself, thinking, and then they put it up for sale, thinking uh, would maybe raise a couple of thousand dollars for, for a charity. And I think it went for over a half a million dollars, um, which stunned everybody, including the New York times. But the, the, I think the, the uniqueness of this is part of what's driving it. I think because we don't, we all don't understand that a lot of the art community can sort of get in uh, at, at the early stages on it. I'm really curious how 
this marketplace is going to help, I guess, the starving artist. In a lot of ways, trying to find a gallery space for your work and to find buyers for your work as a living artist, it can be a big challenge. And I think the barrier to entry has always been very high. Um, but I wonder how um, NFTs are going to um, help living artists be able to fund their bigger work. Mm. Um, I, I'm sure that NFTs are going to get more complicated and complex, and I'm sure some are rich um, in in their design. Um, but I wonder how these digital products are going to help, um, I guess, beautify our living world, which is going to be really interesting. And then on the flip side of it, I wonder how people who are not, um, who would not normally have means to be art collectors might become art collectors um, because it's right there on their phone. And so they are now embracing art when maybe um, it would have been something that felt too far afield because, oh, art goes into a museum and I am not someone who goes into museums because I don't either feel like I fit in or can't afford it, even though museums are great places and you should go anyway. Because <laughs> um, most of them are free. All, all the best ones are free. <laughs> Jessica, did the artists that you spoke to address this? What, 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 what led them? To, to start to explore NFTs as an option? What, what's the appeal to an artist to get into this? Well, I think um, one of the big reasons is, well, when I, we spoke to Brendan Fernandez, it was really about having that piece that can live on um, and also um, help the other artists he was working with. So I think that that is a big point to make is that, you know, this is really at the moment doing great things for artists to be able to find and what they're doing and, and to make money off of this um, without, you know, use certain platforms and certain sites and whatnot to trade. Um, but yeah, I think it, it's interesting. It's so new. It's still really, really new. So I think it's going to be it's really just, interesting to see how it plays out. It just really opens up a, a whole new marketplace, right? For, yeah. for, you know, for these, for these artists to, to be able to, you know, distribute their, their work. I think it's really cool. Yeah. And I think with the East End in general being such an art hub, you know, in the world, um, and we've seen even, it always has been, but even, you know, since the pandemic had even more, um, we will see a lot more of that coming up. Um, so, and also like for fundraising where, you know, a big, huge area for fundraising and, um, to be able to, you know, sell certain artists, work, you know, just by a QR code or something like that at a fundraiser may drive, you know, a lot of revenue towards nonprofits. So, so, so I like, I, I think it's really cool, but just, just devil's advocate. So, so art has always been about, um, and this goes to, to JD's point a little bit too, art has always been about, about display, whether it's a performance or whether it's a painting or whether it's a photograph or, or, or whatever. I mean, people want, want to own those, those works, but you want to display it too. How do you display an NFT? How do you display a digital, a, a digital product that, that is living, you know, on your, on your hard drive, I guess, I, I'm see, not I showing my ignorance, I, but. I feel like this is the interesting part of it because I, I feel like so much of our lives are now digital. And so much of our life is lived on online that, that that may be part of the equation here, Jessica. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I don't know too much about, um, you know, displaying, but I think there are ways where you can have it like put on a screen, like if you wanted it on your wall, like depending on the size and things like that, um, which could be, I, I think we may see a lot more of that and companies sort of coming out with plans for that. Cause if you own a really rare NFT or even just one that you really love or, you know, however you plan to be in that world, it's like you may want to display it on, you know, in a physical space on your wall. So <laughs> I, think right. I mean, that. Bill sky's the limit. You, could you imagine if there was, an NFT collector and they opened a temporary venue space in uh, na name the the uh, the the art museum or, or gallery space and it's more about enjoying the art together. I mean, that's the whole reason why you might go to a museum is to go see the art, but you're going maybe with people to enjoy what you're seeing. And so you walk in and there's like a meet and greet and you scan something like a QR code on your phone. Now everybody's flipping through, you know, these, these galleries of digital products. There can be still that kind of experience that we're familiar with the museums right. um whether it's in person or or digital you know i mean we could sit here on our computers at home and enjoy some art you want to know who i think is loving this i'm a big fan of the artist marcel duchamp and somewhere you know he was one of the early conceptual artists and somewhere out there he is enjoying seeing this because he was the one that started the ready-mades which is the idea of he would hang a snow shovel in in a gallery and call and label it in advance of a broken arm that's the name of the work and that's the work it's a snow shovel i bought at the hardware store but i've decided it's a piece of art and a museum would say well we'd like to have one too it's like okay I'll buy another shovel and give it to you. And now you have it as well. The idea of who owns art now comes down to if you've painted a painting and then you create an NFT of that painting, is it the person who owns the painting or the person who owns the NFT who actually owns that art or do yeah. either of them own that art? So it can be part of a series. So, um, it, and the artist, I think, determines that they can have one of 4,000 pieces sold. Right. And then it's not worth as which, much or it's one of 10. Which, which and, is no different than right. having a painting and doing 4,000 prints of it, right? And, and exactly. Print. exactly. I, I just love it. I, I think it raises so many interesting questions about the nature of art and ownership. Uh, and, and so, and, it, and it's obviously having the, the sexy cryptocurrency aspect to it too is is part of what's driving it so it's good to hear that local arts i think jd hit on a big part of this that if it's going to help the local art community and it helps them in producing other types of art as well because it becomes a a, a new source of revenue i think that's a good thing for everybody i think we can applaud it so even though we don't understand it completely i think we're all kind of fully in support of nfts is where we land on this. This is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our, uh, our panelists today are J.D. Allen from WSHU and uh, Jessica Mackin from the James Lane Post. And uh, so let's talk about uh, our friends from the, the News Review couldn't be on with us this morning, but they published this week an obituary for John Talmadge um, Bill, he was a he was just a, a guy that should be remembered because um, he was a very important figure in the earliest part of farmland preservation on the East End. Right. He, he was he was a real pioneer 
as far as that goes. Right. His his family, um, they, they they started off um, in, in Massachusetts, but migrated to Southampton and East Hampton and then realized that the sand out there might be uh, or the soil out there might be a little too sandy for what they wanted to do and, and ended up in Baiting Hollow, uh, growing potatoes and, and cauliflower. Um, but he, he quickly saw um, or, or envisioned, um, you, you know, what, what could happen to the North Shore or, or the East End in, in general, I guess, as development began creeping east um, and wanted to prevent uh, the North Shore from becoming uh, Nassau County. And he sat down in the 70s with um, with Suffolk County Executive John V.N. Klein um, at, at uh, Talmadge's kitchen table uh, purportedly and, and Talmadge um, and, and Klein came up with this idea um, to to have the, the county come in and buy um, development rights on on farms and, and farmland, which would give a chunk of change um, to the farmer to help them support their businesses, would lower the uh, tax value on their land. The, the farmers would maintain ownership of the land, but but at a lower value, allow them to keep operating their business, pay lower taxes, um, and 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 benefit and keep farmers farming. And this was this was farmland preservation before CPF was was even thought about. Um, you know, this goes back. Uh, you know, 40 years or more by now. And and certainly it, it's a program that continues today, even though there's CPF. And, and I, you know, was looking back at, at Steve's article and, and they said that I think there's, um, you know, $5 million earmarked for it this year and $10 million earmarked for it um, next year. So it's a program that that's going to keep going. But it was um, you know, you, you could argue it was it was his vision alone that helped to, to save farming on on the North Fork and, and probably the East End. I know there were similar deals um, on on the big farms on on the South Fork. Um, so an incredible guy. Yeah, JD. What's I think it's just so innovative and uh, visionary uh, an idea that they came up with because the problem was at the time, and it became an even bigger problem 20, 30 years later. For farmers who had this land and have had it for generations, the, it had such a high value suddenly in the real estate market. The only way they could tap that value was to sell it for development. And so this idea of selling development rights gives the farmers that money in, in an exchange for an, an agreement not to develop the property. So really the community benefits, the farmer benefits. It really was a, a, a brilliant idea. And, and I think as Bill said, I planted the seeds. You would have never had the community preservation fund if it weren't for uh, the farmland preservation efforts that that uh, John Talmadge had a lot to do with, right? Planted the seeds, huh? Yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I mean, talk about just in terms of the numbers, I mean, what incredible success programs like Suffolk County's um, farmland preservation program and the Community Preservation Fund, you know, 20 something years later has been. I mean, Suffolk County's got over 10,000 acres of preserved uh, agricultural land at this point. Um, you know, it's got uh, the community preservation funds got 1.7 something billion dollars um, that some of it can go towards the preservation of open space. And while um, 
and 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 we've seen that benefit um those who are uh don't want to see the character change of the community i mean you know that that shouldn't prevent necessarily infrastructural upgrades and stuff like that to make sure that we all have the the services that we need um but in terms of like keeping the character of a community the same you have agriculture you have the industry of agriculture available to the community. You have open space available to mitigate from the the, the terrors that climate change brings to a community because um, you know uh, open space and vegetation helps you know uh, prevent flooding and um, uh, promotes you know good ecological. Um, um, it, it promotes good health to the environment. Um, so there's also a tax look- benefit, JD, right? Because I mean, that's one of the arguments is that development is expensive. It requires it requires infrastructure and it requires, you know, roads and, and fire companies. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's expensive when a piece of property is developed. If you can save it as farmland, it, it saves the, the municipality a lot of money uh, compared to if it were uh, sprung with a bunch of houses. Sure, because development oftentimes um, it, it's a private enterprise, and and so there's a private business will develop a land, and then oftentimes government around it tries to figure out, okay, how do we sustain what is now in our community, um, and so uh, that that's where that I guess that tension comes from, um, but yeah, yeah, it 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 does help. And keeping the character of a community the same, it also keeps the needs of the community the same in terms of infrastructure goes. Well, and with with development comes, you know, bigger, bigger school districts because you have more kids. And like you said, Joe, roads and 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 uh, all those all those costs and and higher property taxes, too. And, and you know, to, to make the point, this this farmland preservation, these farmers were getting property taxed off their land as as these developments came in, as as, as the property values around them increased and theirs increased, you know, and they were making a. Uh, a, a, a suitable amount of money growing potatoes and, and cauliflower, um, you know, it, it gets to the point where they couldn't pay their property taxes, um, you know, with with that business. And that's where these development rate purchases came in. It, it lowered their property values and then gave them, um, you know, a, a, a chunk of change to, to help them, you know, to help them survive. Um, and it's not. I'm sorry, Bill. It's not just a historical thing. I mean, if as we look at this open space that is now open space forever, quote unquote, um, this allows communities that will have, you know, that might have trouble um, and need space for things. So, you know, land becoming um, community agriculture sites or farmers working closer with community to be able to bridge um, you know, uh, food deserts and stuff like that. Like there, it means that we've got the space to be able to be flexible, to be able to help on environmental issues, help with food insecurity issues, to be able to help with, um, agricultural education issues. Uh, you know, a lot of that goes right back into the schools. Absolutely. Jessica, what I find interesting, we, we all will agree. And I don't think it's, I don't think there's any debate that the land preservation efforts on the East End have been a phenomenal success and have really 
preserved a way of life here uh, that's been beneficial for the whole community. So I think, you know, that's, let's take that as, as said. However, there are discussions now that are sort of moving in the opposite direction that say, you know, the, one of the unintended impacts has been that the value of land has gone up so much on the East End that so many normal people, regular people who, who work the jobs, who, who wash dishes and, and write the newspapers and do those kinds of jobs are getting priced out of the community. And so now the, the conversation is starting to swing in the other direction about the need maybe for more dense development in some places to create more affordable housing, which is the opposite of the conversation that, that we're having, you know, about uh, preservation. Yeah, I really um, think it's about finding a balance because there's no doubt that, you know, housing is one of the biggest issues out here at the moment. I think it's so interesting to look back and if this didn't happen in 1974, the CPF didn't get started, you'd say 20 years later, um, what could have happened to the farmland in that time? Like how overdeveloped would it be at this point? But I think with housing today, there are so many ways to go about it. I think that, you know, there's been the talk of the ADAs coming, you know, I I think that's one way to not develop land that's been preserved, but these are, you know, structures within somebody's own property that could be an option. Um, Can you, can you explain that? What, what we're talking about there? So that would be, so basically an accessory unit or accessory dwelling unit, um, whether it's a garage apartment or a studio or something that you can build on your own property, whether it's, you know, and there's, there's many ways to go about it. So that's one, you know, it can provide rental um, income for somebody who's having trouble paying for the mortgage or whatever it is based on, you know, the rising costs of living out here. Um, It could be for, you know, children who may not have be able to afford a place or aging parents who may not be able to afford a place while retiring. So there are so many options with that, I think, to really look into. And it's such a hot topic um, because I think it really has to be done super carefully. Um, the infrastructure has to handle it. And I think septic is probably one of the biggest issues when it comes to providing more bathrooms and you know <laughs> showers and all that um, on someone's property. Um, and so maybe there's ways that we can provide incentives for um you know, people to upgrade their septic systems and things like that. And I know that's been been in the works for a while, but. Um, and that's part of what the CPF is now funding too. I think, and, and Bill, I think you nailed it. I think schools is the unspoken thing here that that one of the, one of the real obstacles to getting the community to support affordable housing is going to be getting past the idea that, that, you know, some of the school districts are, are, are very much going to be affected and they're, they're likely going to have to look at expanding their facilities because there will be more. Ki- I mean, look, the whole point of this is we want to have more young families on the East End. And, and, you, and there we're talking about more infrastructure. That means bigger schools. Some of the tiny school districts that we have uh, are already stressed out to the max, but uh, they may have to look at uh, some investment. And that means more taxes. Or even some of the bigger school districts. And I'm going to channel uh, Denise Civiletti from Riverhead Local, who's a usual panelist and couldn't be with us today. And, and she talks about 
when when we talk about affordable housing, she talks about Riverhead, which which has its own share, which has a pretty good share of affordable housing itself, and is is um, has several projects in the works right now to build more um, you know large scale apartment buildings with affordable housing, but has a school district that has already burst at the seams. Um, that has high school property taxes already in Riverhead um, and has a population that that may not support, um, you know, uh, community housing program. Um, you know, if a referendum comes up this fall for the, for, you know, for Fred Thiel's community housing, um, you know, fund program, um, it, it's it's a big um, it's a big hurdle to overcome in, in communities like that. And then, like you said, there's, you know, there's there's communities on on the South Shore as well, where, um, you know, where, where unfortunately you have, you know, you have larger properties, you have more expensive properties, you've got, a, you know, a higher end residents that, that don't want to see, you know, projects and, and properties and in, in, in their neighborhoods. And, and some of that has to do with the schools. I'm thinking about, you know, the, the opposite of that is, is Springs, where you already have a, a larger population and maybe more affordable housing than other places on the South Shore, but a school district that 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 can't absorb a lot more. So, yeah, that's a that's a huge, a huge part of that discussion, I think. While schools are uh, and, and the school system as it is, is a, it's definitely something that needs to be kept in mind. In, in addition to, as Jessica brought up, um, the septic infrastructure, which is already right. a failing system on Long Island and a lot of parts of Long Island. Um, it doesn't mean that land can't be planned and sh- strategically planned to be able to, it's not... A, an affordable housing or preservation conversation. There are models that are out there that do both. Um, it's just something that we haven't seen yet in our neck of the woods. I mean, community land trusts, community land banks, these are systems that are owned by communities and community leadership to keep land in perpetuity for affordable housing and open space so that way communities can do both questions about education um, are is is still a concern in those models because we have our schools where they are and would it require shifting students um, or or reevaluating our school district systems it might but in terms of the conversation of is it affordable housing or preservation that's not necessarily the case is what some advocates would yeah. say but it's 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 circular as well though as you know as 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 you add more affordable housing um as as you increase schools and you increase school property taxes then you make it less affordable for for the rest of the residents to live in that community and and so you're you're in, in that sense maybe perpetuating that that problem as as well i think and jd i think maybe you hit you hit on it and, and maybe you have have to look at how we're doing school districts and you know instead of um you know small school districts in each individual community and maybe this is what you were hinting at joe is is maybe you have um you know you have a larger regional um school districts where so you're you're saving costs on administration and shared services and and that type of thing and not trying to run an entire school district in one small community yeah, I mean, it's been a long conversation about that for a long time. Go ahead, JD. 
I was going to say that um, the, the alternative here to what we're talking about, though, is uh, when, when we're talking about preservation and affordable housing is without these structures and what gets us back Talmadge here is that what he was worried about is that land was just going to be carved up and we were going to have subdivision upon subdivision upon subdivision that, you know, creates the suburban sprawl that we've seen in other areas of the island and in the country. And so what what he was catching in the 70s was how do we plan for what land should be preserved for agricultural use? The conversation now that people that are like Talmadge back in the 70s is how do we plan to be able to preserve and create land that's affordable for us to continue living in, which is what his original goal was for farmers. Right. And it needs to be understood. That's an important point. I I mean, yeah, I think he wanted to to reduce the spread um, of, of development, but he also wanted to maintain a lifestyle for farmers and um, you know and people in that industry and and he created if you if you think about it that program then created a whole entire new industry on the North Fork when the wineries came in years later because you had you had all that land that was now um, in in perpetuity to be used for agricultural uses that's what these these um, you know these these preservation programs did is they, they took the the developments right rights off it and and said in, in the agreement that they would only be used for agricultural uses um, you know for that point forward um, and it got to a point where potatoes and, and cauliflower weren't doing it because even even because of his best efforts there was some sprawl and and you know and and you know property became more expensive and it became harder to maintain you know a business selling you know potatoes and cauliflower so you had you had the wine industry come in and, and purchase up a lot of that property and look what's that look what that's done you have and some on the south fork too but you've got this north fork winery and um, industry you've got people that come out all spring summer and fall to to tour the wine You've got this agro tourism businesses that have sprung up at those wineries, too, um, that help support the community and put money into the community. And, you know, I I doubt that that was his vision at the time, but that's part of what what he created was was that new industry. Yeah, I think the the greatest tribute you can you can say is is think there's a thought experiment. If John Talmadge had never had that sit down at his table back in the 70s it was right i believe yeah. um, how might the east end look different uh compared to the way it looks today and i think that's the biggest tribute you can make to, to john talmage i think uh his impact on the community was enormous and it's worth remembering that this is behind the headlines on WLIWFM, and uh, so before we we're, we're running late on time here but i want to point out uh jessica the great news is COVID has suddenly become our closing topic rather than our opening topic, which I think speaks volumes all by itself. It's not at the top of the list anymore. Uh, We're seeing positive rates falling to uh, levels that everybody's feeling much more comfortable. And this week, just in the last couple of days, we had, uh, I think on Friday, we had a big development come out of the uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, right? Yeah, it may have come out like while we're speaking, actually. I think that um, what was planned to come out today, if it hasn't already, um, is that the um, the metrics that they use to determine whether the ma- there's a mask mandate or not um, 
will be changing, not based um, as much on, um, it will be based on hospital capacity rather than um, the percentage of positive rates. And that's because the Omicron variant proved to be much less severe than other strains. So I think that's where, where that's all going in the next few days, so. So the focus is gonna turn more to the local communities, hospitals, and their ability to deal with uh, the, the hospitalization rate. And, and I, it, it should be said that locally, the hospitals here, Peconic Bay uh, Medical Center and Stony Brook Southampton Hospital have both held up very well throughout the pandemic. Uh, I believe the peak number that we saw at Southampton was in the mid to upper 30s in their in their uh, COVID unit. Um, and they've had, I believe it was, uh, I, I don't want to throw a figure off the top of my head. They've had several hundred deaths uh, that have come through the hospital. But, um, you know, it's been, it's, it, the hospitals have been able to handle the, the, the um, flow of patients pretty well. And, and so we may start to see a return to normalcy here uh, in the coming weeks and, and months, correct? I mean, I think that's the what we're COVID, all hoping for, right? The COVID numbers have definitely gone down. Hospitals right now are still dealing with a good amount of patients that are seeking services that they couldn't get over the last couple of years. And so mm -hmm. um, I, I, I think that the, the conversation of COVID hospitalization numbers, which is what, um, as Jessica said, is going to be looked at more in terms of um, for for CDC's monitor, monitoring of the the pandemic, but um, these these hospitals are still stressed. They still have, and we need to remember that in our communities, they're they're they still have staffing shortages. I mean, um, while their ICU beds might be less packed, you know, their inpatient hospital beds are still, you know, around eighty percent um, as of this week uh, because of patients seeking the. Um, physical elective surgery, but also mental health concerns. So um, it's something still to keep an eye on, although there is good news on the COVID front. Yeah, I think it seems like light at, light, at, light at the end of the tunnel and well, well welcomed light. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're all and, and I think we're hopeful that we may actually last summer felt like it was a little bit of a reprieve, but I think maybe this summer might be the start of of some positive feelings about it. I still think we're gonna be dealing with it for a while longer. Um, and I, I just wanna throw in a quick plug. Um, the month is almost over now, but it has been American Health Month, I'm sorry, American Heart Month as well in February. And I did an interview this week uh, with Dr. John Riley, who is the Director of Cardiology at uh, Stony Brook Southampton Hospital. He's also involved uh, with Stony Brook's cardiology. And uh, we did a Q&A about cardiovascular disease that I think is just an, a crucial topic uh, for this month. It's the leading killer uh, of Americans. Um, and it's not something people are necessarily familiar enough with and the warning signs. So, um, you know, we have an article up at 2070s.com that is a question and answer session with Dr. Riley that I, I think he had some very informative things to say about some of the symptoms to watch for, some of the, the strategies that you should have to stay healthy. This is something that affects families um, every day 
It affects people. You know, a lot of people, one of the, the shocking things is uh, it affects people quietly. And until there's a real crisis, they don't even know that they're dealing with cardiovascular disease. So I just want to encourage everybody, men and women alike, to, to get out, you know, get out to their doctors, make sure that they're paying attention to the, your, your cholesterol, your, your uh, blood pressure levels. Those are all very important parts of cardiovascular health. And it's a message that's important year round, but I think during American Heart Month, I think it's even more important. So we are out of time for this week's conversations, but I think a very good set of conversations this week. I want to thank uh, our two uh, guests this week, J.D. Allen from WSHU and Jessica Mackin from the James Lane Post. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Appreciate you being here. Uh, Bill Sutton, my co-host, thank you as always, and we'll be back next week. Always fun. So thank you all for joining us uh, for Behind the Headlines this week. Uh, we will see you next week. Thanks, guys. Great show, guys. Thanks a lot.